0: you're listening to the jewel city podcast you can join us sundays at 10 a.m in person or online or wednesdays at 6 30 p.m in this podcast we're going through the books first second and third john with linda sims
1: good evening everyone we're doing session two of strengthening our relationship with god our teachers is dr evans we're going to be doing books one two and three um, Dr. Evans is the founder and senior pastor of um, Oak Cliff Bible Fellowship in Dallas, Texas. And he's chaplain of the MBA's Dallas Mavericks. He was the first African-American to graduate with a doctoral degree from Dallas Theological Seminary. He raised four kids. One of them was Priscilla Schreier. So we ladies know about her. We've done a few Bible studies with her. And his wife, Lois, passed away um, I don't know the past couple of years, anyway. So uh, he's a widower now, but uh, they have four adult children. He's done some teachings with them, but that's who our teacher is, and I'm facilitating his study. And we're going to be looking at First John chapter two tonight, verses 12 to 27. And here, uh, here's our opening question: What's one of the craziest arguments you've ever gotten into with a family member? Yesterday my grandchildren got in a fight over the remote. <laughs> they, were, they were cleaning up their toys and one of them wanted to pause it and the other one wanted it to run and they so the the girl the 9-year-old yanked it out of the 7-year-old's hand and he was fit to be tied and so was she. They were both in tears. They were both angry with each other, and they didn't want to have anything to do with each other. And I, I can remember some arguments with siblings that kind of went that way when I was growing up. It took me a little while to work with them, you know, to, you, will you forgive me? Yeah, I'm sorry. And the little girl was just in tears. She was brokenhearted. The little boy couldn't remember what he did, and he shoved her. But, you know, it breaks relationship, doesn't it, when we have fights like that? So let's look at our scripture, starting in verse 12. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his namesake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I've written to you, children, because you know the father. I've written to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning." I've written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world, nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also it's lust. Isn't that good news? But the one who does the will of God lives forever. Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they are not of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. I've not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father, and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. As for you, let that abide in you which you have heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. This is the promise which he himself made to us, eternal life. These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. As for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in him. We're going to watch that video in just a minute. Uh, You know, we don't get to pick our families, do we? Like Billy said, he was youngest of four. He didn't get to choose that. And I was the oldest of four. I didn't choose that, and neither did any of us. But it's the same with God's family too, isn't it? We are here um, as believers, and we're all brothers and sisters. And so John has a lot to say about how we do family right. And that's what he was talking about in the scripture um, that we read this evening. So let's go ahead and watch our video, and then we'll catch up with the rest of our lesson.
0: The Apostle John understands that fellowship with God is a family affair. That's why in chapter 2 he breaks down the family of God into spiritual development categories. He begins in verse 12 by saying, all of you are little children, that is part of the family of God. But he says, as little children, one group, your sins are forgiven. Then he calls them young men because they're battling with the devil. And then he calls another group, in verse 14, fathers. In order to be a father, you have children. These are the mature Christians who are developing other disciples and followers of Jesus Christ. And that's what you want to become. You want to become a spiritual parent. In order to grow, to become a spiritual parent to lead others, he goes on to say, you must have gotten to the place where you're no longer loving the world. That's what this famous passage means in verse 15 of chapter two, do not love the world nor the things that are in the world. If you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. The world is that system headed by Satan that leaves God out. Worldliness has to do with the placement or the absence of God. We talk about the world of politics, the world of finance, the world of fashion. All of those worlds have a central theme that is surrounded by all the things related to that central theme. If I talk about uh, you know, the world of politics, anything having to do with government becomes part of that world. So worldliness is anything that has to do with excluding God. So it's not merely a place you go or a thing you do, it's a perspective that you have. You can be in the world, but he says you can't love it. That is, you can't pursue its highest interests at the expense of your relationship with God. Because if you do, you lose the love of the Father. You lose the intimacy that produces the fellowship, that produces the growth that God wants you to have in your life. You can't love the world and have a dynamic interface and interaction with God. Now, John has a concern. He has a concern that there are forces out there at work that want to take us away from this intimate fellowship with God that he wants us to have, which is the theme of the book. That's why he says in verse 18, it is the last hour, and just as you've heard, Antichrist has come. They went out from us, but they were really not of us because if they would have been of us, they would have remained with us. He's talking about the scepters in the church that wants to draw us from fellowship with God and into fellowship with the world so that we don't grow in our spiritual experience of intimacy with God. You see, it is the antichrist goal, that which is against Christ's goal, to keep us from experiencing the spiritual reality, the spiritual depth, and the spiritual intimacy that God passionately wants for us. But guess what? God has an antidote to that. It's in verse 27. As for you, the anointing which you have received from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about all things, it is true and not a lie, just as it is taught you, you abide in him. Now I want to spend some time talking about this anointing. There's a lot of confusion about it. But it is the key to understanding how you are to maximize your spiritual development. First of all, he says, every Christian has it. Every Christian has the anointing. Let's look at it this way. If you have uh, television in your home, that means that you have uh, some sort of dish or cabling that allows you to get a picture. It allows you to see on the screen something that's invisible made visible. That means you have a receiver. That receiver connects you through cable or through satellite to the picture that you want to see through the service that's providing uh, the programming. And when that receiver is on, You're able to take from another realm and see it made visual in your home on your screen so that you now see what is being made available to you. That is an illustration of the anointing. God has given every believer a receiver. That's the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit's job to pick up God's signals to pick up that which is coming from heaven to you on earth, for you to be able to understand not only God's point of view on a matter, but in understanding that, have it illuminated in your mind so that you can act on it and not be tricked by the devil or his minions, Antichrist. He says, you have the anointing. So powerful is this spiritual receiver the Holy Spirit, that every believer has. It's so powerful that he says, you have no need for any man to teach you. What does he mean by that? Obviously, he's teaching them now by even writing the book of 1 John. What does he mean that you don't need any man to teach you? Well, remember, he's just talked about worldliness, and he's just talked about the Antichrist. So he's not talking about you don't need any human teachers because then there would be no need for preachers, there'd be no need for pastors, there'd be no need for Sunday school teachers. We're told that God gives gifts to the church for the edification and building up of the saints. What he is saying is when the anointing is on, when your receiver is kicking in and it's working, you don't need a perspective that disagrees with God to inform you because once you get God's perspective you don't any longer need a human point of view to know how to live your life to know how to experience God to know how to see God at work in your life you don't need any man that is any man in the world any man outside of God's point of view directing your thinking your movement and most importantly your decision making because you already have your own receiver Let's put it this way, you don't have to go watch television at somebody else's house when you got a receiver at your own house. When you got God's receiver kicked on working in you, then you don't need the world to tell you how to live and you don't need the antichrist, who are the teachers of the world instructing you how to live. Wow, did you know that you had all that working for you? That's why he says in this same verse, you must abide in the anointing. To abide means to hang out somewhere. To abide means to loiter. To abide, the Greek word, "meno" means to remain. So abiding means keep your receiver on. Don't turn it off. Don't, don't uh, turn it off and go over here to the world and get a little something over there and then come back to God and get a little something over there. Cause that's what a lot of people do. They come to church and get the receiver then they go to the world and get something that contradicts the receiver, and so they are living in this back and forth experience. He says, remain in the abiding. Let's put it this way. Have you ever left dishes in the sink that had crust on them, Uh, you know, food that had stayed on there for a while, and you're trying to scrub it and get it clean? Well, the simpler way to do that is to simply let the plate or the dish abide in the water, the hot water with suds in it, you just let it sit there. And if you let it hang out there long enough, it'll infiltrate that so that you can slide off the problem of the dirty dish, rather than try to force it off yourself. When you abide in the anointing, when you're hanging out with God's point of view, looking to the Holy Spirit through the truth of God's word, to bring clarity and growth in your life, you will find him sliding things off of your life, off of the plate of your existence that don't belong there, rather than you trying to force it and make it happen because you are in the abiding. You won't have to force a picture from heaven to earth in your life. God will slide it into your being because you're hanging out with him. Your spiritual maturity from a baby Christian to a teenage Christian to a father where you're developing other people? Well, guess what? God has situated your Christian experience so that that can happen through the connectedness of the relationship. You know, I like drinking hot tea. There are a couple ways you can drink hot tea. Some people are dippers. They go up and down, up and down, up and down. Then they put the teabag on the spoon, then they wrap a string around the teabag that's on the spoon, then they take the finger and they push it down on the teabag that's on the spoon in order to get the water to be changed. Well, I'm not a dipper, I'm an abider. I just drop my teabag in the hot water and I just let it hang out there. I don't go through all that work of pushing down, wrapping and all of that. No, I just let it hang out there. And if I just let it hang out there, I watch the water be transformed right in front of my eyes. It's transformed right there as I look at it, simply by letting it hang out in the right environment. You abide with God, it is truth, and not love the world, you won't have to try to grow, you will grow just because your soul is being fed through the satellite dish that every believer has. It's called the anointing. So let's move, let's don't stay babies. Uh, let's grow through those teenage years. Yep, there's struggles in that time. But then let's move to spiritual parenting where you're bringing other folk along because you've been hanging out in the anointing. So
1: here's our question, okay, in the last session, Dr. Evans laid out the idea that our lives as Christians is a family affair, isn't it? We relate to God and to each other much like a family does. But just like a family can live side by side and not really have fellowship with each other, so too can believers. So here's the question. Has your, in light of his teaching, has your view of your relationship to God and to other believers changed? And if so, how? I think um, for me, I mean, sometimes I don't connect the dots real fast. <laughs> and just like he said, sometimes in a family you can be in relationship and really not enjoy the fellowship. I, I think I really hadn't thought a lot about that. So that's probably how it's changed. That, that this, this chapter is really talking about us having a strong relationship with the Lord and each other and, and ways to do that. So that's how it's changed for me. Okay, we're going to read these couple verses here. We're just going to read these three verses. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I've written to you, children, because you know the Father. I have written to you, fathers because you know him who has been from the beginning. I've written to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. So how did Tony describe what's going on in verses 12 to 14? He's talking about us at various uh, maturity levels in a family and we are growing, aren't we? When we come to the Lord, we're not, we've, we're, we're on a journey where we're learning and we're growing in a relationship with him so in verse 12 who is john addressing we as believers and i heard someone say children both answers are correct they are it's every one of us if we believe in jesus that's who he's addressing why does he call them little children so i know my son and daughter-in-law have four children there's a five-month-old and there's a nine-year-old and they're all children but they're i mean the baby's he's just learning to giggle and the others, we don't get excited when they giggle, but we do when he does. Because <laughs> there are different places, and we are too. But we're all children. What unifies the believers to whom John is writing? Jesus. We're all forgiven of our sins because we've received Jesus. He, he paid the penalty for my sins and your sins. Every one of us, that's the same thing that's happened to every single one of us. So in the beginning, let me see here. Before John addresses believers of various maturity levels, he sets the most basic family relationship of all. We're brothers and we're sisters. We're the children of God, who through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, his firstborn, he's brought people of all kinds together in one big family. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're a child of God. So let's look a little bit about the family of God. Try to get, I'm trying, there are so many slides tonight. I'm gonna to try to get us through it all. Uh, this is Matthew 12, verses 46 to 50. Then there, you can see the verses. While he was still speaking to the crowd, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. Someone said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, Behold, my, my mother and my brothers. And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. According to Jesus, who are his brothers and sisters? The ones who do the will of the Father, yeah. Whoever does the will of the Father, who's, who's his sister? child doing what he does. Here's more. If your brother sins, we, we operated by this, Matthew 18 at our school. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, Tell it to the church, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven." Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but to seventy times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his lord commanded him to be sold, along with his wife and children and all that he had, and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything." And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. That's what Jesus has done for us, isn't it? But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a 100 denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, have patience with me and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported it to the Lord, all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. So here's the question. Based on those verses, how does Jesus want his brothers and sisters to treat each other, love each other, just like he treats us? Forgive well, of course, restore a fallen brother in love. He talked about agreeing in prayer, didn't he? He said, if we will agree in prayer, we'll have, he'll answer our prayers to gather in his name. You've said, love one another, be, be merciful, forgive from the heart. And let me see if I had a note about that. Oh, and that Matthew 18, where it says... Um, If he doesn't listen to you, you go to two or three witnesses, and if he doesn't listen to them, you take it to the church. And then it says, if he doesn't listen to the church, treat him as an outcast. I used to think that meant you shun them. To my shame, that's what I used to think. But that's not what that verse is saying. What that verse is saying is if they don't listen to the church, then they're probably not a believer. Then it becomes our job to love them, to do everything we can to bring them into the kingdom. And that opened my eyes when I learned that to see that's really what the Lord is saying there. Do you agree?
2: You know, Linda, um, down through the years in pastoring, you try to restore, you try to make things right, but there's a choice people have to make. You're right. I know that... (laughs) I think everyone knows in here that i'm I don't walk around like an authoritarian, but there has been times in leadership positions down through the years where I've had to sit down and correct and ask um, that they be willing to you know make change. and it comes down to the person's heart whether they want to or they don't, you know? When people fall into sin, and maybe you set them down from the platform or whatever, you know, and ask them to go through a, t- a process of healing and restoration, it always comes down you to their choice, too.
1: It does, their he choice. doesn't force us, does he? No. The no. Lord always, always no. gives us a choice.
2: And I can look back and see That the ones that humbled themselves, acknowledged the sin, followed the steps, the process that was laid out before them, God has restored them, lifted them up again to be used. You know what I'm saying? Yes. And the ones that didn't, God didn't, you know, because it's our choice.
1: I think that's why there's steps in Matthew 18. I mean, sometimes we think we know best. We we don't, because we don't see. Thank you, Pastor. Let's look at Matthew 25. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will... (coughs) Excuse me. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now this is at the judgment seat um, at the end of time This is when this happens. So, and he says, For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. A commonly misunderstood passage in Matthew is this chapter we just looked at, where Jesus judges the nations based on how they treat the least of these, my brothers. Why would Jesus judge the nations based on how they treated his family? He judges the nations because to the extent that they did it to the least of these, his brothers, they did it to him, and he loves his family. He gave his life for us. He gave his life for us. In light of that, how should we treat his family? We should love them. We should provide for their needs, shouldn't we? And we we can't do everybody, but we can do, when the Lord tells us or shows us, we can do that. Now, here's more. Now, after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave, and behold... A severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it, and his appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He's not here, for he has risen, just as he said." Come, see the place where he was lying. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid, go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. Upon his resurrection, how did Jesus refer to his disciples? They were his brothers. Why is it important that Jesus sees his followers as family rather than students? You know, they call him master, but he sees them as family, not students. It describes the intimacy of their relationship. I had to think on this question. You know, as brothers, we're joint heirs with him, aren't we? Everything he has is ours, and he's going to share with us about our father because we have an intimate relationship with him. What difference does it make to you and me that we're siblings with Jesus rather than servants? We do serve, don't we? But we're we're family. We're loved like family. We have relationship with him. We're princes and princesses. (laughs) Child of the king. We really are. We really are. In verses 13 to 14, John goes on to set up two groups of people, the young men and the fathers. What did Tony say those groups represented? The fathers were the ones that had matured and were discipling. The young men represent growing Christians. And the fathers represent, just as Rita said, disciple-making, mature believers. What's the primary battle that new believers face and have to overcome? The world, the flesh, and, and that, um, well, let's see here. And that was the battle with Satan, wasn't it? the one who would pull them away from Christ. That's who that battle was with. Whether we're a new believer or a veteran, our perspective of new Christians can often be shaded by their immature relationship with Jesus. In the past, what has your perspective been toward new believers, whether it was you or someone else? What has been your perspective? (laughs) Yes, sometimes, she said, sometimes we expect them to be more mature early. don't we? I, I remember my sister could ask me, oh my gosh, the questions she could ask me and I really, I had to go back and dig and their enthusiasm she wanted to get it right, she wanted to do things right, she wanted to understand the word and she would ask deep questions that made me think and work and study and to seek the Lord on it and sometimes we can get impatient with that but we shouldn't should we? I
2: just when you said that uh, being impatient, we need to be patient and allow them to grow. Yes. And not expect them to be mature the very moment they come to Christ because it's a process.
1: They're baby Christians. You, yeah,
2: you don't grow overnight.
1: No. We need to, allow we need to let the, allow the Holy Spirit to grow them yeah. and not expect too much of them. They've, they're hungry. They might, they might have things mixed up a little or out of balance sometimes, but that's part of the growing process. That's how we learn. Our perspectives as we grow, even as we become more mature, our perspectives are going to change as we grow, aren't they? That's what he was saying. And we should expect to be growing, even as we mature in the Lord, he's gonna grow and change us and show us new things and keep, you know, what does it say? He'll continue that work until the day he takes us home. Does John's commendation of young believers change the way you might think about a new Christian? And we, I think we've talked about that. Here's what, um, and he said this, it can be tempting to be critical of their lack of knowledge or stumbling faith, that's what we've all been saying, but they've overcome the greatest battle through Jesus Christ when they came to the Lord. They've overcome it. They start off in victory over Satan. The moment they receive Jesus, they've just overcome the greatest battle. We don't want to lose sight of that. Yes, there's a lot of growing, but boy, they've done a a huge thing. They've, They've accomplished so much already. And they bring energy and excitement. Sometimes we lose sight of where we came from and kind of grow lukewarm. So they can teach us a lot. What specifically does John commend the fathers for? I think that's in verses 15 to 17. I'll put it up. They know God. They're no, they know God. That's what he commends them for. Um, intimate friendship. They have intimate friendship with the Father. Okay, let's look at these. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. Okay, so what is the one requirement that John lays out for growing toward maturity? <coughs> what did he say there? Not, not loving the world. When I first uh, came to the Lord years ago, I had a dream. And in my dream, there was a big arc and I was running, I was running to that ark, and I was trying to get there, but I had all this baggage, and I was stumbling over it, Um, it was too much for me, and the baggage had names. It was, it was those three things in this verse, let me go back here, the lust, uh, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life and that dream tormented me because I was trying to get rid of them, and I'd try to throw them away, and they'd just they'd stick back to me. And so I finally went forward in a church service and asked a mature father in the Lord to, and told him, I was so struggling with that dream, and they prayed with me. And so just like we learned last week, Jesus is the advocate for us in prayer, And. um me trying to, my inability to get rid of those things of the world. I, need, I needed last week's lesson then, but, but just was a matter of me confessing. And the Holy Spirit's so patient and he's so gentle. And I'm going to tell you, I'm still getting rid of those things, but the dream doesn't torment, it, torment me like it did because I was really struggling with that. I just needed to be honest with the Lord, and I was. And he's working on me and he's still working on me. And and I'm glad I belong to him. So it's not loving the world. How did Tony define the world or worldliness? Excluding God? Anything that has to do with excluding God or any sphere where he's not welcome. What areas would you say the world carries influence today? Does the world carry any influence today? What area does it? Uh, Exactly. I, th- I thought of a few, <laughs> I mean, our con- what we buy, our government, uh, what we see on this, what we see on the TV, in our schools, in our churches even, in our churches, our relationships, our work, employment, how we dress, I mean, it's, it's everywhere. How have you seen this either or choice play out in your life, the, cho- the world or, you know, have you seen it? you had a struggle with it? Or what about in our relationships or our walk with God? Has it affected us in any way? If I don't spend time with the Lord in the morning, some of you may find this hard to believe and others of you won't. I am mean and cranky. <laughs> I really am. And it shows up. and He's not. He knows I am mean and cranky and um, I'm out of fellowship with him and it shows up. It just does. Uh, Someone said, one week, W-E-E-K, without the Lord makes one week, W-E-A-K. I I see it a lot sooner than that, in a matter of hours. Billy? The world does, it does crowd in. I know some of my choices have not been the best. I'll choose entertainment over time with him, maybe a movie sometimes. Now, there's not anything wrong with a movie, but if the Lord's telling you, come away and talk with me, you need to choose, choose him. Or fasting. Uh, I'll fast eventually, but it takes me a while to work my way up to, to giving up that food. Um, you know, sleeping maybe, but not getting up early. I have to have my prayer time in the morning because I'm like Mike. I get to the end of the day, everything is crowded it out, and I get to the end of the day, I'm too tired. So I have to have it in the morning. But I mean, it all comes down to choices, just like Pastor said earlier, right? We have to choose, and it's and it's minute by minute. We each have the choice. Okay, let's look at this. When the let's let's look at the world. Let me take it my time. Oh, okay. We've got a ways to go. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. What similarities do you see between the three tempting aspects of the fruit in this passage and the temptations John highlighted in 1 John two sixteen? Okay. Let me put up John... For all this, yeah, those, I mean, that fruit was appealing to her, wasn't it? She wanted it. This is how Tony summarized it. We want to satisfy ourselves and exalt ourselves. I mean, it all kind of boils down to that. So how do you see these three temptations play out in your life? Do they? Yes, if we're human. I mean, it is. we live in the world don't we we live in the world um and look here what does it say to you that humans have faced the same temptation since the beginning of the world i mean i i put this there's that verse no temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to man and satan's tactics don't change much do they we should be wise to him somehow we should be What can we do to head off these self-centered attitudes in our lives? Seek God, yeah. If you've experienced a growing distance in your relationship with God because of the world's influence, what helped you turn around? What woke you up? And boy, I like this woke. (laughs) The woke in this verse. Instead of the other woke we're hearing. A lot of times
2: it's through a storm. Yes. It's through a death. It's through a financial crisis. Um. It's yep. not always, but when I see people, I can see people come through the door and had not been here in three or four years, and I know they're in trouble. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's sad, but you see the Lord touch them and take them through their storm, and oftentimes you don't see them again mm-hmm. until the storm.
1: I think you're right, Pastor. I know you're right, those storms. What might you say to someone facing a similar temptation to love the things that hate God? She said those are temporal things. Focus on the eternal, the things that are going to last. So let's think back to Tony's words about spiritual parents. Why would not loving the world be key to our ability to disciple new believers? Why would not loving the world be key our ability to disciple new believers It's it's a distraction for sure discipleship involves belonging to the Lord forsaking the world and I wouldn't be too effective in teaching someone to do that if I'm not doing it myself right What does the tension of being in the world but not loving the world look like in your life? Where do you feel the most pull? Yeah, There's a lot of it around in the world. It's, It's bad enough that we face the internal temptation to love the world, but John continued in his letters by highlighting yet another threat to our fellowship with God, and those were the Antichrist. That's the next slide. What's helped you better love God while living in the world? For me, it's fellowship with you all. It really is. Studying God's Word, uh, that strengthens me and challenges me. And um, accountability, having, you know, you make, me, you make me be accountable to the Lord. Okay, first, pardon me, T- key word. He said, that's a key word is accountability. Children, it's the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they are all not of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. I've not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lies of the truth. And um, just hit me, because you know the truth. Who is the truth? Jesus. Jesus. It's not just that we know truth. It's that we know the truth. We know Jesus. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. As for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you shall also abide in the Son. This is the promise which he himself made to us eternal life. These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. As for you, the anointing which you received from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it is taught you, you abide in him. So, how did Tony describe these antichrists? They were, they were deceivers that came from among us. Does that surprise you? They came from within the church. What's their goal? Draw us away from God. That's right. Draw us away from relationship and fellowship with Him. And how do they accomplish that? They lie to us, make Him look appealing. Love for the world, the things of the world. I had a pastor friend once, he had a boat, and I know, Pastor, you have a boat. And he said, when that boat started to tempt him to go out on Sunday and cruise in his boat, that was the day he sold it, because he recognized what it was doing. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son, Whoever denies the son does not have the father. The one who confesses the son has the father also. What test does John lay out for determining the validity of someone's claims? What's he say there in those verses? Whether or not they confess Jesus. That's the test. Here's the Nicolaitans. Is that how you pronounce that, Pastor? Yeah. <laughs> Okay, they promoted a kind of hedonism, and they taught that, among other things, if God gives us all the grace in the world, we can and we should live to satisfy every desire our bodies might have. Does that sound like truth? It doesn't line up. How might that be denying the Son, as John says? It's not truth. So how is it denying Jesus? Jesus? Jesus died to save us for holiness, not for more sin, right? So that, there's the lie in that belief. Here's another one, the Gnostics. They believe that Jesus never came to the earth in the flesh. He was simply a man and dwelt with Christ's spirit. How's that? Not true. How does that deny Jesus? If he wasn't the God-man, we're not saved from our sins, are we? We are not. So there's two. Are there other errors in the popular Christian culture today? There are. I'm putting up two of them. Churchianity. And here's another one. And this one, this was in the event uh, from uh, Billy Graham evangelistic association how many saw this progressive christianity can lead you straight to hell there's here's a little bit about both of these churchianity rather than christianity being a relationship with god by which a disciple is joined to christ follows him and becomes more and more like him here's what many modern younger evangelicals believe they they kind of they have a it's a moralistic faith It's related to just being good. I'll be good. It's therapeutic. It makes me feel happy. Their Christianity is a form of therapy. And it's deism. God is vague, but he's unreachable. He exists, he created the world, he defines our general moral order, but he's not particularly personally involved in one's affairs especially the ones they don't want him to have him involved in. (laughs) But we have a lot of young young people that this is how they're operating. Here's progressive Christianity, and I got this information from this. It's a willingness to redefine, re-examine, and ultimately reject core historic doctrines of the Christian faith. It interprets the Bible through the lens of culture. It does not critique the culture through the lens of the Bible. It aligns with current cultural norms regarding same-sex marriage and abortion. It embraces a gospel centering around universal salvation and social justice rather than personal salvation, sin, and redemption. It embraces a mindset that we know better than God And the plain sense of the words of the Bible cannot be trusted. It has nearly universal denial of original sin, the substitutionary atonement of Jesus, and the existence of hell. That's the world church that's developing. I saw, um, it was, uh, let me see was someone from the muslim faith a catholic pope and it was a born again christian and they were all saying you didn't have to receive christ you just had to be good and that's a lie <laughs> straight from the pit of hell it? but that's the world church that's the direction of that world order that's where it's headed narrow is the gate so there, there were a few other philosophies out there. Uh, I put up any works-based religion, and uh, some of those, and I have I, I, three sisters, two are born again and one is not. She believes in this. She believes in working her way to heaven, reincarnation. That she's gonna keep coming back till she gets it right. And that is a lie from the pit of hell. And of course, Evolution is another one. I mean, it's, it's uh, a lie. So in this session, Tony hones in on John's answer to the problem of deceivers in the church. I see you checking your, I'm trying, Jim. <laughs> he tells us, we have a special anointing, don't we? We have the Holy Spirit. And when I put up those things, didn't your spirit go, didn't, your, didn't it just kind of turn over? Because you knew it wasn't true. That's the Holy Spirit ta- talking to us. We have a special anointing. And who has this anointing? Christmas. Just pastor? <laughs> every believer, every Christian, every true Christian. And how did Tony describe that anointing? He said it was a receiver, didn't he? Uh, to pick up the signals from God. In your experience, has, how has the Holy Spirit helped you discern the truth? I, I put up a few scriptures. He brings to remembrance the word of God to us. You ever been talking and all of a sudden, you, a scripture comes to mind. That's the Holy Spirit. There's the witness of the spirit. You're, just like you saw some of those beliefs that are not Christian, it, your spirit didn't, your spirit didn't agree. <laughs> and then there's the peace that comes from his presence. What worldly teachers compete with God's voice in your life? Are there any? I had a professor in college. She had been, this was when I was working on my master's degree, just um, 12 years ago. I don't know, maybe a little longer than that. She had been a Catholic nun, and she stood in front of the class and she said that Jesus was a moral man but that he, he wasn't God. And I, I raised my hand and I said, you can go to any of these other people and you'll see their grave, but you won't, you won't find his because he rose from the dead. And she said, how do you know that? And I said, well, he's not, in his, he's not in the grave. And the Bible tells us. And she looked straight at me and said, the Bible lied. She had been a Catholic nun. This is what our kids are hearing. This is what our kids are hearing. So those are some of them. How might or how has the Holy Spirit combated the worldly ideas that compete with God's truth in your life? How does he combat those? Soaking him in. It's important to spend time with him, isn't it? He teaches us all things from his word. He does teach us. He prompts us to speak. He gives us words to say. When I was... um, I took a, a class, uh, it was called Rare Cats, and uh, my, my background is biology and science, and so I, <clears throat> I took these graduate level classes and I went to Green Bank in the summertime and did the operated uh, 40-foot radio telescope. And I had my little sign, Linda Sims, Heritage Christian School, minding my own business, sitting at the lunch table, and some of the other, they were teachers, public school teachers, and some of them said to me, hey, Linda, how do you handle evolution in the Christian school? Now, I didn't ask for that question. <laughs> I'm sitting there eating, minding my, my own business. And I said, well, we teach it. Now, I, I'm, I'm ashamed to tell you, I think there's some pride in my response, so, but I'm gonna tell you, we teach it, we just teach what's wrong with it. <sighs> that went over like a lead balloon. And so they talked to me about, well, how can you, you know, um, how, how do you explain the age of the earth? And I said, well, some people think that maybe God created the world with the appearance of age. The response, well, I can't believe God would do that. He, that would be so mean for him to do that. I heard myself say, well, it's in the Bible. And I'm thinking, it's in the Bible? what are you saying? Where in the world is that in the Bible? Why in the world did you say that, Linda? And they said, what do you mean? I heard my words. Adam was one day old. and He was an adult man. That room went quiet. I had never thought of that. The Holy Spirit gave me words when I didn't, I didn't even have that knowledge. I had never thought of that. He, He will do that for every one of us. Okay, how does it change your picture? I know we're late. I'm almost done. How does it change your picture, of the Christian life, knowing that God will grow you through the presence of his Holy Spirit? And I put up some ideas. Do you picture yourself as resting in his hands? How about this? How about, do you picture yourself as being on his potter's wheel? You know, in Isaiah, he was... Or maybe this one. A chick under his wings. Or this one. Are you running your race arm in arm with the Holy Spirit? This one came from my husband. Are you encouraged by the growth we see in Peter? You know, he denied him. But then, he was, he was counted as one of the... Um, as a, an apostle and a, and a father in the church. So do you, any of you have any of those pictures of yourself or a different one? As for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it is taught you, you abide in him. What does John challenge us to do? Just abide, right? Just abide in Jesus. Just rest in Jesus. Just stay connected to him. Just get to knowing. And he illustrates that abiding like a tea bag. Remember steeping, just soaking him in? So peek at the Greek let's see, means to remain or stay, does not mean we have to work hard. It's permanent. It's like residing in a home. Um, And it goes on to, there's that verse, we saw that. Ask what does abiding look like for you? What disciplines? Here's different disciplines we could do. Fellowship, all of those, any of those. And I think a lot of us are doing those. So here's the last word. The Holy Spirit is our helper. There are many competing voices shouting for our attention. Um, Even people within the church. But when we rely on the Holy Spirit, there in the light, we can see the truth, can't we? And God has called us to something better. Fellowship with him. And there's, you've got these last two that are on your page, the live it out. And this is the verse they recommend we memorize this week. Don't love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Yeah.
2: When we first started tonight and speaking about how to treat each other and how to love each other, this thought came into my mind. Why do churches, and we're blessed to have never been through a church split. But how can we abide in Christ, love each other, forgive each other, but still split? It's got to be maturity, levels, to where pride comes in. Let's love each other. Amen. Rusty's our chairman of our board. He can testify 28 years. We've never had an argument in a board meeting. Never. Because we sit down and we talk and we love each other. We love God. Let's continue that. That's what the world needs to see. We need to see the church unified, moving in the direction of the Lord. If you're here tonight and you've never given your life to Christ then today, the Bible says, is the day of salvation. So if you're here and you've never prayed and asked Christ to forgive you of your sins, slip your hand up right now. Is there one?
0: Thank you for listening to the Jewel City Podcast.